Mr. Steve Ray, as we continue our journey into how is it that we lost our sense of sacred? What have we lost along the way? And how can we capture that? I thought you would be one of the best people to talk to about this because you and your wife, you, you've been to the Holy Land over 200 times and you've been taking pilgrims there for nearly two decades. And so you're really connected to the sense of you encounter people who want to be connected to the sacred, at least sacred places. So what do you think of when it, when it comes to this topic in relation to what you've been doing for the past three decades? Well, it's called the Holy Land for a reason. You can kind of equate holy and sacred being very much uh, similar. Sacred means um, reserved or set apart for God or for holy things. Holy means pretty much the same thing. Um, when you when we go to the Holy Land, we're stepping into a, a unique area. I think it all started in a way when Moses was out walking in the wilderness and saw a burning bush. And uh, God spoke to him from the bush, and he walked up and he looked and he listened, and the voice said, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And if I were Moses, I'd have said, well, what are you talking about holy ground? This is the same dirt that was here yesterday. I've walked on this dirt with my sheep for 40 years. Those are the same rocks. So what do I have to take my sandals off for now? But the presence of God changes things. He, his presence sanctifies things. And therefore you take off your sandals because Moses has been walking in sheep dung for the last 40 years. And in the Middle East, feet are considered dirty. The bottom of shoes are considered dirty. In fact, David, if you go to a church with the local people in, say, the Palestinian areas or in Jerusalem, most of the Christians there, by the way, are Palestinians, and you cross your legs at Mass, someone will come up and slap your legs and say, put your foot down. You don't raise your foot in the presence of God in the church because the bottom of feet are considered to be filthy. So Moses is walking along here and God says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. It's the same with the Jordan River, for example. When we buy a souvenir or a religious item, we always want the priest to bless it over there. But if you get water out of the Jordan River, no need. Because it's been said that water's already holy because Jesus stepped into that river and he sanctified that water. Which is why now water can, has been able to sanctify us through baptism. So we as Catholics believe that there is what we would put in two categories, profane and sacred. Sacred is that which is set apart for God, which has a holy purpose. And profane doesn't mean profanity. It means that which has not been set apart for God and is normal or everyday type of things. In a way, our life should all be sacred though. So when we take people to the Holy Land, I always want them to know that they are stepping off the plane onto ground that's not like ground that you step on anywhere else. Now, as a Protestant, I wouldn't have thought that. I would have gone, I never went there as a, as a Protestant, by the way. <clears throat> I never had the desire to until I became Catholic. <clears throat> as a Protestant, I would have gone as a tourist. In fact, Pro uh, Protestants don't call them pilgrimages, they call them tours. 
And I would have gone there with a notebook in my hand and a Bible, and I would have taken notes, but I would not have had a sense of the sacred. Becoming Catholic, though, I have an incarnational view of life. I have a, a view of the sacred and that God actually permeates. He uses things. As Protestants, it was always everything is spiritual. And it's almost Gnosticism in a way where spirit is good and matter is evil. We had a kind of a form of that as Protestants. But the Catholic says that God loves stuff. He made stuff. And he, when he created the world, he made it. He said, oh, it's good. Oh, and that's good. And I just made that, and that's good. And now I've, when I'm all done and there's mankind, it's very good. He likes stuff. He made it. And he uses matter and stuff for his purposes. He uses oil for to uh, bless, to ordain, to heal. He uses water for baptism. He, he could have just said, just snap your fingers, but he didn't. He uses wine and bread for the Holy Eucharist to become his body and blood with stuff. Bread and wine turns it into his body and blood. So, so God uses things and he uses the land. I, I remember, David, the first time I got off the plane in Israel was 1995. I was a brand new Catholic. And I had loved the Bible as a Protestant my whole life, taught the Bible in Baptist and Presbyterian churches. I, I loved the Bible. My mom and dad taught me to love that since I was a little kid. But I wasn't prepared for what would happen when I stepped off the plane in Israel. I had just become Catholic in 1994. Our first pilgrimage was 1995. I stepped off the plane, and in Israel, there was not the nice modern airport yet. It was just the old tarmac. And you got off the stairs, walked across the blacktop, and then you walked into the old airport. I remember, I'll never forget the sensation that overcame me when I stepped off that plane. I fell on my face and I cried and I left a pool of tears on that tarmac. And my poor wife just stood there waiting for me to get up. I just laid there and I sobbed with my backpack on my back. I was in the land of Jesus. This was the land of the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings and Jesus and Mary and Joseph. It was the land of the apostles and the apostolic fathers. And I was on that land. It was not just any tarmac to me. I was in the land. I was on sacred territory. And I remember that pilgrimage. I cried through the whole thing. We were at the place where Peter, Jesus said, feed my sheep and tend my lambs. It's called the primacy of Peter, where he gave him the primacy. And I remember the priest asked me to do the readings for the Mass. We had the Mass there, which is called the Mensa Christi, the table of Christ, where he had the bread and the loaves and he fed the disciples. We had Mass right on that rock in this little church there, Franciscan Church now. So I stood up and I said, a reading from the second letter of Peter. <laughs> I could not get it out. My, my throat swelled up. Tears came in my eyes. I tried for over a minute. And I had to sit down and the priest had to get somebody else to do that reading. I couldn't read it. I was so overcome with emotion. Everywhere I went on that trip, I was overcome with emotion because I realized this is really where Jesus was transfigured. This is where Jesus stood. This is where Jesus said, and I've given a talk 100 times to groups at Capernaum, at the synagogue, where Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I am the bread of life which came down to heaven. I am the bread of life. If you eat of this bread, you will never die. And they argued with him. And so he upped the ante and he says, and I'm not talking bread now, unless you eat my flesh, sarks, red meat, and drink my blood. There's no life in you. And the 
In readings at Mass, it says, in these words, Jesus spoke in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, I had a guy come with me one time, and he told me on the trip, he said, you know, Steve, he said, I'm just going to let you know this. I really don't want to be here. My wife went fishing with me last year for 10 days, and this was the deal. I had to come here with her as the trade-off. I said, that's okay. I said, don't worry. The land is going to reach up and grab you. When you come to the Holy Land, you don't just touch the ground. The ground comes up and grabs you. We're at Capernaum where Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. We had mass there. And always, by the way, at these sites, the mass is site specific. So at that place, it's always John chapter 6. At the tomb, it's always Easter morning mass. Doesn't matter if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, June, July, August. It's always their site specific. And it says, Jesus was on this high mountain. The readings are changed by the Franciscans. Jesus was in this synagogue. So when we got done with Mass, that guy came up with tears running down his eyes. And he said, Steve, I'm not a reluctant pilgrim anymore. I just realized where I am. I said, I told you the land would reach up and grab you. So this is really, if, if someone comes there with an open mind, even if it's not all the way open, the, the land, I think, is powerful. And it's the people aren't always holy and the situation isn't always holy. And if you leave your camera somewhere, it's going to get stolen. You'll never find it again, like anywhere else. But there's something unique about that land. The part of Jordan where the Bible took place. Jesus was baptized in Jordan, not Israel. Elijah was born and assumed into heaven from Jordan, not Israel. John the Baptist was beheaded in Jordan, not in Israel. There's a lot of things that happened in Jordan. So once a year, I take people for five days through Jordan and hit all the biblical sites, and then we cross over the Jordan River and we spend eight days in Israel. Those are the people that are really getting to see the Holy Land because they're seeing the whole, both sides of the Jordan. But that's kind of um, Al Cresta, who's a good friend of mine. We were friends as Protestants for 12 years, best friends before he converted to the Catholic Church and shocked, shocked me. to. I said, Al, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You're way too smart to be a Catholic. What in the world are you thinking? But him and I are still best friends, and I took him to the Holy Land. And when he came back, he said, that is the most top-notch form of evangelism that you can have. He said, that is the most powerful evangelism is to take people, get them out of their comfort zone, get them away from their gadgets, you know, get them away from all the gadgets and the television and their work and all the things that they get like in a routine in a rut, get them out of the rut, take them over there out of their comfort zone, wake them up early in the morning, take them out hiking, walk to the place where Jesus did that and Mary did that. We pray every mystery of the rosary where it happened on location. And it has a powerful, powerful evangelistic presence for people. We're, my son is doing something. My son and daughter are kind of standing. Kids are supposed to stand on their dad's shoulders and take things further, you know. So they started a travel company called Inheritance Pilgrimages. And they're, what they're doing now is just taking young people from 18 to 26, college-age kids, and they're taking them over there to teach them and to expose them to their inheritance as Catholics. They're immersing them in a seven-day Bible study of their inheritance. This is who you are. This is why we're Catholic. You don't leave this church. This is where it started. 
This is where the rosary came from. This is where Jesus died, right here. You can reach down here, guys, and you can touch the top of Calvary. And if you touch that 2,000 years ago, your hand would come up sticky with his blood. That's what you're touching. And go in the tomb and look. It's empty. And these young people, we've taken a, a couple buses now of them, and the impact it has on these kids is profound. I don't think that any of those kids will ever leave the Catholic Church again because they've been immersed in that land and in the reality of it. And it has a big impact on everybody that goes, I think. I was impressed with your point, Steve, about how God uses stuff. And I, as you were speaking, you didn't use the word specifically, but you, you said this in a way that, well, God uses stuff and he uses it for us. It's a, ultimately to glorify him as well. And I want you, in that sense, to comment on the Blessed Mother Mary. And when I was coming into coming into the faith, I was exposed to your series of videos called Footprints. Um, I think it was Footprints to God. Yeah. And in one video, you're talking about the Blessed Mother Mary, and you're talking about the Immaculate Conception, and you just fall flat down in a, a pool of mud yourself. And, and, you, and, you, you, and you're trying to demonstrate how God, um, just like Mary didn't do that. He carried her over that mud pile, so she wasn't exposed to the stain of the original sin. If Mary was conceived without sin, then why did she need a Savior? Let's think about it this way. There are two ways to be saved from a muddy pit. You could be pulled out and cleaned up. Or you could be prevented from falling into the pit in the first place. Both situations require a savior. By a singular privilege of God and through the merits of her son, Mary was prevented from falling into the muddy pit. Sin had no place in her. And I always thought about that. When, I mean, your example there, it, it struck me as, well, Mary was there in Jerusalem. Even though you fell in that mud, she avoided that mud. And it's, it, it was like you grounded Mary in the place. And so can you talk about Mary as sacred? In, in, a, in a way, she's just a girl like the rest of us. She was. She's made the rest. The, the difference is, is at the moment of conception, she was preserved from original sin. And she said yes to God in a very profound way that all of us should say yes to God, give him our fiat. But Mary, was, had her body was made of bones and flesh, and just like us, she had two ears and a nose and two eyes. But she was special in the sense that God preserved her from the stain of original sin, and she chose never to sin the rest of her life. And therefore, we call her Holy Mother Mary, the Holy Blessed Virgin, because she remained that way. And just imagine God in heaven saying, I'm going to find a girl. And she was probably only 15 years old when she said yes and became pregnant with Jesus. I got to find a girl that's going to give birth to my son. My son, who's second person of the Trinity, who does not have a body, he's 100% spirit, is going to acquire a body for all of eternity. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of his father now in his body, with his body. The catechism makes that very clear. I want to find a girl who will donate her DNA to my son. My son's going to have the DNA 
and physical body of this woman. And he's going to breastfeed from her for, 30, for three years because that's how long they breastfed their babies. They couldn't go to the hardware store, I mean the uh, drug store, and get formula in a bottle. And all of his cells that developed in his body for the first couple of years came from the milk from Mother Mary. What kind of a woman would you choose to have your son be born from? And then to choose a man like Joseph, what kind of a father would you want to be his foster father? What kind of a man? In fact, just think about this for a minute. God relinquished some of his fatherly prerogatives and gave them to Joseph. He is the eternal father of the son, and yet he relinquished some of his fatherly prerogatives. And he said, Joseph, you raised my son in his bodily form. So these two are very special people. And Mary was very much loved by her son. And I didn't realize that as a Protestant. We used to just think that Mary was just any, any girl could have been used. In fact, the first time I took a group, I'll tell you this, I never used this guide since, but it was the first time he's a friend of mine, a Jewish atheist guide. And now I've used the, the same guide a hundred times, who's a very devout Catholic from Nazareth. He's a real Nazarene. We've done a hundred trips together. But the first time he was Jewish and we came to Nazareth, he said, now when God wanted to send his son down to the world, he needed a girl to be the mother. So he sent the angel down and the angel asked all the girls and most of them said no, but Mary said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and I said, can I have the microphone, please? I took the microphone away from him. I said, that, that was just heresy what you did. That... You, this is a Catholic group. What in the world are you talking about? You just denied the Immaculate Conception and the whole plan of God from the beginning of time. But I was doing damage control through that whole trip, and that's why I never used him again. That won't ever happen on a pilgrimage of mine now. But, but Mary was very sacred, very sacred and holy. And even the angel said when he came, I don't think that the angel, and I tell people this when we're there, because we go right to the cave. Mary lived in a cave not in a house. And we go right to that cave and we pray the first joyful mystery there. Hail Mary, full of grace. Guess where those words came from? Those words came from that cave. If you'd have been there 2,000 years ago, you'd heard the angel say those words right there where we are. And he said, Hail Mary? No. That's what everybody thinks he said. He didn't. He said, Hail Kahare Tomene. Kahare Tomene is a Greek word that means one who has been made full of grace in the past and who remains in the state of grace at this moment. And it's in the passive tense, which means it's been done to you. It's not something you did. It's in the passive tense. You have been made holy in the past and you remain in that state today. And John Paul II says that is Mary's name in the eyes of God, the one who is full of grace. And what is grace? It's the very life of God. Mary is full of grace. That means that there can't be anything else in there like sin or wickedness or evil because she's full and overflowing to the top with the life of God. And therefore, she's sacred and she's a very holy woman in God's eyes. At the opening of this lesson, Steve, you have made a distinction or you use some synonyms to describe what holy is sacred, just reserved, is set apart. It was like a an idiom, so to speak. We, we could speak about these things in, in the same way. And I think a lot of people, maybe some of your students listening to this course, they may they may say, okay, well, I understand how God sets apart people like Mary. He sets apart places. He sets apart things and time, stuff. 
as you would say. But what about me? Like, why should I believe that God has set apart a sinner like me? Why, why should I believe that? Well, the very fact that he considered you valuable enough and everybody else listening to hear that if you were the only person in the world, he considers you of inestimable value. That's why we Catholics are pro-life, because a baby from the moment of conception has an inestimable value. That child, you, me, we will live for all of eternity. When God created us, when we were born in the womb, we received a soul at the moment of conception that will live forever. And that is very special to God. When he created everything else, he said it's good. But when he made Adam and Eve, he said it is very good. He made us in his image. Is God holy? Yes, he is. In fact, you never hear of God referred to as love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But in Isaiah, you hear him from the heavens saying he is holy, holy, holy. And in the Bible, when you use something three times, it's ultimate quintessential, can't exceed it. Three means the best, the holiest, that's it. So when God made us in his image, he made something very special. He considers that very sacred. In fact, so much so that when man fell, that he knew he had to drop behind enemy lines and come to make a rescue attempt which is what he did because Satan took over. He became the God of this world. And when, G when the devil came to Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus didn't say, you don't have the authority to do that because they're mine. No, he, he said, don't, which the scripture said, don't worship anyone but God. Paul refers to the devil as the God of this world. And so God comes down in the form of his son. He comes down behind enemy lines and he starts a revolt. He's bringing a revolt. And why? Because he loves you and me. We're so special. He, he thinks we're so sacred that he himself came down and took on a body like us in order to retrieve us. He himself took on a body. He took stuff, matter, bones, flesh, all of the things that make up our bodies, calcium or 75% water. He took all of that himself and became a man. It says in John that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacled. He took on, he put on a tent. It's the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember that tabernacle? Talk about sacred. Talk about holy. That's called the holy ark of the covenant. You don't dare touch it. A man named Uzzah touched it one time just, and he fell boom, dead right on the ground. David was then afraid of the ark. That is the holy ark of God. And just think of that. Mary becomes the Ark of the New Covenant. She's got in her not the Word of God in stone, but in her is the Word of God in flesh. Mary becomes the Ark of the New Covenant. God came down and became man. It says that he took on, he tabernacled among us. That Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle it was in, that is what you get the impression that God, when you wanted to see God back there, you went to the tabernacle and you'd see the glory of God coming out of the tabernacle. When you wanted to see the glory of God 2,000 years ago, you'd go see Jesus because he's the tent, his body is the tent, but out of him exudes the glory of God because he is God. So he took on flesh because we are so sacred, so special, so loved, so holy in his eyes, retrievable, that he is willing to give his own life to get us back. 
called redemption. Redeem means to buy something back. It's like going to a slave market and buying a slave and setting him free. This is what he did. What he said talks about our redemption. He came out, he bought me off the slave market. And he said, you're now free. I love you. I became like you so I could save you because you are so darn special. And so, yes, you and I are, and then we're called to actually live out what we are. We're actually called to live it out and to bring it into practice and then to fruit that we become holy because that's what God is inside of us working to bring us and make us holy. It's not like the Protestant Martin Luther where you're just declared to be righteous. I say no. As a Catholic, he declares us to be righteous and then he sends the Holy Spirit to go right inside of us and start making it happen from the inside out. And I think some of the students or maybe someone who's listening to like the Catholic um, understanding and our, the, the truth for the first time may say, like, oh, okay, well, I, 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 I may get the Imago Dei thing. I mean, you know, I made in the image of likeness of God. Oh, okay. But I'm living in a world where people are saying, you know, shout your abortion. You know, <laughs> they're, how can these how can we reconcile when we're talking about one of the questions that we're dealing with, like what was lost along the way of this sense of the sacred? Maybe this is one of those things that the image of God has just been lost and the image of God has been lost. The understanding then hasn't the sense of sacred been lost as well. Yes and no. We are, it says that we are made in the likeness and the Im image and likeness of God. We retain the, the likeness. We're made in his image. We have a soul. We have a spirit. We can communicate. We can love. All of those things we can do because that's what God does, and he made us in his image, and also his likeness. But we lost, the catechism says we lost the likeness because of sin. So the sacred just because there's a lack of sacred in the world doesn't mean that we're not sacred. I, I would say this what happened when Adam and Eve, they were supposed to be loyal to God. They were his vice regents in a sense. They were going to be co-creators with him. He put them in charge of the garden. When God told them to name the animals, that's a way of saying you're in charge of them. When you have a son, you name your son. Why? Because he's your son. When Adam was told to name the animals and to tend and to take care of the garden. He was put like the manager for God. He reported directly to God and God gave him this responsibility, but he gave it up. He relinquished it when he sinned and let Satan come in. And then the bond between him and God was broken and death came apart. Death is a separation. Adam and Eve had a spiritual separation from God. And later it came about in a physical separation of body and soul. Adam and Eve were separated from each other. It's the woman you gave me, he said. So all of these different separations took place and caused death. That's why God is starting to do a, um, a reconnaissance. He's, he's done what he, he's bringing it all back. That's why there's sin in the world. That's why there's suffering in the world. It's not because God created the world like this. Somebody says, well, if God is a good God, then he wouldn't let this happen. Or maybe he's not strong enough. Maybe he can't do anything about it. That neither of those are right. The third alternative is that he is good and is fixing it, and he is strong enough to do it. But he's doing it again through us, through humanity, by sending his son down to become a human being. And now he's doing it with his church and he's working to restore things. But we're living in a world that has lost that sense of sacred. I would play off of a miracle and a parable of Jesus. 
he healed a man who had a le uh, had demons in him and he said what is your name and he says my name is legion for we are many and why have we lost the sacred well, i would say that the reason is legion there are many reasons why we've lost the sacred we've lost the sacred first because of sin that came into the world but then you watched I just finished a commentary on Genesis, and one of the things that impressed me was how quickly sin just in, encroached into everything. Murder came. Cain killed his brother Abel, and then there came multiple marriages, and all this sin came in, and it just, just like a rotten, cancerous element came into the world and into mankind and they lost the sacred and paul says in first in romans that they began to worship the creature instead of the creator and they started to worship their sexual impulses and all of their appetites and their gods became their bellies their bellies became their gods what happens now when we get to our culture it has exacerbated it even more because science and philosophy and everybody says there's no god anymore when you, when you had the concept in society, everybody accepted the idea there was a God. And there, that has always been. There's never been atheists like there are today. All through human history, there was a God or gods that we are accountable to. But in the last hundred years or so, something radically different happened in human society. And that's where we've all concluded there's no God. And if there is a God, he's totally irrelevant. You watch a movie. I remember the, a movie I watched a long time ago called The Perfect Storm. I don't know if you ever saw it. They're out in a ship, and the, uh, two storms collided. And these guys are going to die, and they knew they were going to die. And never once did they pray. Never once did they mention God. And I said to my wife, this movie is a big lie. It's a farce. Never, if there were men on a ship, even if they were not believers when they got on that ship, as soon as they knew they were going to die and that ship was going to be, they're going to be praying and saying, dear God, save us. And all of a sudden, God becomes relevant. But the movie said no. And the movies that we watch today leave God out of it. Schools are saying there is no God and they're acting as though there isn't a God. Everything we do, David, everything we do, the noise, the inundation is that there is no God. This is why to regain the sacred, we have to step out of the world once in a while. We have to step back. And we have to, what Paul says, renew our mind. Spiritual readings, going to mass, fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters who really believe there's a God and it matters. Reading the Bible, praying, raising your family, that there is a God. The family should be the place where children are raised to know there is a God and we see him answer prayers. We watched him answer prayers when mom and dad prayed. And then, and, and I think the number one thing people should do is get rid of the television. I have a television in our home, but it's for watching old movies. When the kids come over, we watch Andy Griffith and I love Lucy. And we watch old, good old movies, you know, good stuff, morals, where they did believe in God and they do care about life. Get rid of the television. The television, I think, has done more harm to the Catholic family than anything else. And then their parents let the television babysit for their kids. The parents spend very little time. They're not, they don't even eat together anymore. Family should have dinners together. And dad should say, every day we're going to sit down and have dinner. We're going to take the next paragraph in the catechism. What do you kids think about this paragraph? And discuss it. And the family should be a place where the sacred is restored and where the sacred is lived. And I, I always like to say that families, once they get rid of the television, start praying together and ask God to do things. Make a, 
make take a piece of paper and draw three lines down the center of the paper. And then the one thing, this is what we asked God to do. This is our prayer. This is the date that we asked it. And over here in the third column is going to be the date when God answers it and we'll thank him. And watch God work miracles and watch kids grow up seeing God answer prayers. So the sacred is for legion reasons why the sacred is gone. Our culture has just totally abandoned God. School, and get the kids out of school, for heaven's sakes. We homeschooled our kids. There's so many ways to educate kids today without sending them to the public school where they're going to have LGBT stuff down their throat and abortion and everything else. The kids are our most valuable possession as a family. We need to make sure they're educated correctly. And it doesn't happen by itself. They're not going to... Okay, here's, here's what happens. We lose the sacred... And we pick up our worldviews like we catch a cold. How do I catch a cold? By being close to somebody else who has one. How do I get the flu? By being next to somebody else who has one. How do I catch this anti-God, atheistic worldview? By being around people like that all the time. How do I get over it? By getting away from them. Being in a family, being in a church, being in the Bible, being in prayer with God, spending our time thinking about spiritual things, renewing the spirit of our mind, as Paul said. How do you do that? With good books and good good television, good movies or whatever, and get involved in these kind of things. That's how we bring the sacred back again. And uh, get our kids around good priests. Find a parish that loves the Lord and that's not preaching all of the rainbow stuff. Teach, get, find a parish where they still believe that there's such a thing as beautiful, sacred music. And find a parish where they have beautiful buildings which elicit the presence of God for our kids and make sure they know how to genuflect because Jesus is up there in the altar. Now, it, it, we have to, we're a subculture. We as Catholics now are no longer part of American culture. And if we think we are, then we're going to lose it. We have to think of ourselves now as a despised subculture. We're a group of rebels living in an underground subculture because no longer does the world accept our way of thinking, our God, our morality. And as soon as I say anything against LGBT or rainbow flags, I'm considered a hater. I'm considered the enemy. And I am because I don't buy those things. So we have to think of ourselves to restore the sacred in a way. I give a talk called Raising Rebels, that we have to raise our kids to be rebels Rebels against what? Against the culture of death, against sin, against nonsense, against stupidity. And raise our kids to be loyal to the truth and to beauty and to family and to holiness. That's really rebellious to do that today in our culture. Yeah. Steve, right for your last question, you touched on this um, a bit in this last segment, but I want to return to your, your book, Genesis, because the word itself, of course, as you know, means beginning. And I was thinking about Pope John Paul, St. Pope John Paul II in his catechesis on love, or commonly called the theology of the body. And he starts off this catechesis with that point. He, he likes to say, in the beginning. And he keeps returning to this in a number of ways. And as you were speaking, I was listening, and I was thinking how difficult it is sometimes to ask people or tell people, we just have to return back to the basics, right? Um, we have to go back to that good old time religion, right? <laughs> and, 
And we're living in a society where we want to keep reinventing the wheel. And you know, as a Catholic, there's always like this latest program. There's always some sort of new thing, whether it's, it's Alpha or some, you know, Chosen. It's always a, a new thing, right? Um, but So how do we know? Because you've articulated wonderfully what we need to do, how we need to return back to the basics. You outlined that. But if someone's wondering, like, well, how do we know that works? I mean, what's your elevator speech? I mean, you're in an elevator with a guy, you're going up, you know, it's going to be five minutes. Maybe it's the Eiffel Tower. You're going to be a little bit longer. How do you convince them that the Catholicism in its just its purest form, just the basics, the, the religion that has made so many people saints? Um, how do, how, what's, what's your selling? What's your pitch? I don't think you could do it on an elevator. It's too fast. I, I wear normally a chain here with a cross on it, and I get a lot of people coming. I wear this beautiful cross. It's a San Damiano. I don't have it on now because I'm not out in the world. But anytime I go out, I have it on because people always say, well, that's beautiful. And I say, well, thank you. I, I wear it proudly as a Catholic. And it starts a wonderful conversation. So on an elevator, I do oftentimes, or on an airplane or in an airport, I do get those quick conversations and I let them know that I'm fully Catholic. I believe it's true enough to die for it. But if you get somebody longer than that, how do you know this is true? Because if you look at Catholic families in general throughout history, they're the joyful ones. They're the successful ones. And if you go back in the first three centuries, I give a talk called Swimming Upstream. And we talk about the new evangelization. And people are writing documents and coming out of the Vatican. And I don't think any of those are necessary, David, because we already have a blueprint of how to convert a pagan world. And we do live in a pagan world again. How do they do it? The early church in 300 years without Twitter, without Facebook, without television, without podcasts, being despised and persecuted, they turned the whole world upside down for Jesus in 300 years across the Roman Empire. They defeated the Roman Empire because they believed it was true enough to die for it. And if we don't today believe it's true enough to live it out and even to die for it, we're never going to convert the world. I tell my kids, I have 20 grandchildren now. I have four kids and 20 grandchildren. And I tell my kids, in the presence of my grandchildren, I want you to raise them to be martyrs. And little Maria Faustina says, but why do you want us all to die? They said, I don't want you to die, Maria Faustina, but I want you to know there's something worth dying for. Don't ever deny Jesus and his church and his morality. Don't ever do it because I'm a selfish grandfather and I want you in heaven with me someday. So I think that what we need to do, the conversation we need to have, is to show people that the whole way that the world's going now, people have never been more lonely. There have never been more suicides. There's never been more drug use and death through drugs. People trying to find happiness. They're given no answer for happiness. They're going through every kind of sexual deviation and perversion, every kind of drugs, alcohol, every kind of crazy thing, suicide, everything else. We look at our world today. Is this really the whole idea that God is gone? This is where it's gotten us. The 20th century had more tyranny and totalitarian governments uh, like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and these guys. More people died 
in the last century than in 1900 years before as, as Christians, as martyrs. This was, this was carnage. And what brought it about? The whole abandonment of the sacred, the whole abandonment that there's such a thing as God and that we have to obey his laws and his commandments. Once you throw God out, then men become gods and then they take over and they bring carnage into the world. How do I have to look at Christian faith, what has it done? It was beautiful. It's done beautiful things. Look at, no, the best art in the world has been done during Christian periods. Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. The best art, Rembrandt, all these guys. The, under the Christian influence, the world is not perfect, but it's a much better place. Take God out of the picture and look what we're left with today. People are hopeless. They don't have any meaning in life. And they're looking for something, which I think is a perfect time for us to evangelize because they're looking for exactly what we have to offer. Mr. Steve Ray, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on returning to the sacred. Thank you. Well, thank you, David. Keep up the good work. I'm proud of what you're doing and God bless you for it. 